Today for Primer we're talking to Rachel Hope. 21st century government requires policy, delivery, tech and data all to be brought together in an integrated way, but very few people are showing how to do it successfully on big citizen-facing services. Rachel is one of those people. When we first met at Department for Education in 2018, she was transforming teacher recruitment. Two years later, when the pandemic forced schools to close, she also led DfE's Get Help With Technology programme, which put laptops and internet into the hands of over a million kids nationally so they could do remote learning. And now she's NHS Digital's Director of Tech and Data for Vaccinations, leading the team that built the digital infrastructure behind 126 million jabs. So if anyone can tell us about how to deliver public services at scale in the digital age, it's Rachel. Here's your primer with Rachel Hope. So Rachel, welcome to Primer. Um, let's wind back to 2018 and you've just arrived at Department for Education. You're there to lead the transformation of teacher recruitment. Tell us how you got there. What's your backstory? So I've had a, a really interesting and varied career uh, with thanks to the civil service. So I joined the civil service as an analyst. I moved over and started working in a minister's office in the treasury and became totally addicted to policy making. These big knotty problems that needed uh, untangling and thinking about how we could respond and having impacts on like quite frankly millions of people's lives. Um, and so I was quite fortunate to be able to work both in the Treasury and the Cabinet Office, which gave me exposure to both the skills of policy making, but also how decisions really get made at the heart of government. And that's really important to understand um, to ensure you have an impact. Uh, I did fall in love with one policy and decided I really wanted to see it through to delivery. And this was a policy w where it was created in one department and delivered in another, which I wouldn't advise. But I saw it through and moved over to um, HM Revenue and Customs, which was really getting going with um, its new digital teams. So I got to work within digital teams. I got to start leading digital teams to make change happen. Um, so I started to evolve this skill set, which had uh, both policy making skills and digital transformation skills. So when the Department for Education started to think about, well, how do we really crack the problem of teacher recruitment and retention? They were aware that they needed to do a bit of both. They needed to have effective delivery, but also effective policy making. But the two weren't really the two areas, the two worlds weren't really gelling well. And it just felt like the perfect um, job for me to come in and help uh, do that translation and try and move that that agenda forward. When you arrive there, it is a big problem that's waiting for you, isn't it? You've got DfE spending £700 million a year trying to recruit teachers. More people are leaving the profession than are joining. You've got a population spike rolling through the system. How is a digital transformation going to tackle this problem? I mean, it was a huge problem. Let's just let's just think about uh, that to begin with. So you, you say you talked about the recruitment challenge. We hadn't hit recruitment targets, um, i.e. what schools needed. Let's let's break that down to what that is, what schools really needed um, for seven years. Mm. Um, and there was a particular challenge in different parts of the country, particular challenge for um, different subjects. So, for example, maths or physics. Um, 
Equally, schools were spending millions to try and find and attract the best teachers. So um, there was tens of millions of pounds just spent advertising teaching roles. And then at the same time, we were seeing too many teachers leave. And so that great expertise was, was walking out the classroom and making the challenge even harder. And people were really trying to fix this. It wasn't like <laughs> before I arrived, people didn't know this was a problem. There were very frustrated policymakers who were trying initiative after initiative and not seeing it really shift uh, what was happening. And at the same time, teachers were feeling quite overwhelmed with the rate of change and the rate of um, new initiatives that were landing on them. So the really great quote that sticks with me from a teacher where they were saying that they were lying, it's like lying on a beach and a wave crashes over you, but before you can uh, uh, reach up and get breath again, another wave of change hits you. So there was this problem where there wasn't enough time and space to engage and really make sure um, the the new initiatives were taking hold. And so there was a question of, okay, well, some of that is about the, the clunky ways things are being delivered. So there was a, a challenge of how do we make sure we understand how policies have been effective and how are we making sure they're delivered in a way where they can take root? And the answer to that um, is sometimes services, which involves digital transformation, but services allow us to both offer really effective um, ways that people can engage with something on the front line and be able to really track and see the change that's been made. Mm. And so uh, on jo in joining uh, the Department for Education, it was quite clear that we needed to bring policy and delivery together, create these fantastic services and uh, start to really understand and deepen our knowledge at the central decision-making function of Department for Education about what works. Mm, so there's a, there's a great quote um, from you in a blog post at the time. And you say, um, a little bit later actually, you say the transformation of teacher services was driven by teams letting go of the idea that policy and delivery are separate things and you really pioneered DFE's service ownership model where you have got policy delivery operations all working together but genuinely working together in multidisciplinary teams so tell us more about that yeah um, I mean the first thing to say is uh, when we do when I've done this and when we've done it at the Department for Education uh, people really love working in this way and they really love working in these multidisciplinary teams because it really recognises their expertise, but also gives them all of the levers to have impact. So you're not trying to consistently persuade someone else of your idea who has a different uh, snapshot or view of the world. So I think some of the core things that uh, make service ownership work um, are probably... Uh, a clear accountability. So a service owner who is both responsible for policy and delivery. So they hear and feel on a day-to-day -day basis the pains of the front line and they know what they need to change. But they also can hear and understand uh, ministers, stakeholders, other people's concerns and bring those together and sort of bring, this, bring a centre of gravity between these different needs such that... Um, uh, change can be made and they have to live with their own decisions and that means the decision making be, can be quite rapid and quick I think it's also really important that uh, what you do is you build empathy between the different professions when people tend to sit in functional teams so policy or operations or digital delivery um, they only see one part of the elephant and so they they can make a conclusion about what that part what that means from the part they view but when uh, it's together people can take 
uh, they're more able to take a step back and see the whole picture. And when they can see the whole picture, it's easier to make collective decision making and have really good collective um, challenge. Um, and I think it also means that the teams themselves can be better informed such that you don't you can have much flatter structures so you can empower teams to make decisions because they are they have the information they need and they're not sitting in one isolated unit so need someone who sits above to offer them that sort of wider perspective there's so much more i could talk about on this but i think what i've really seen is it enable better decision making and uh, faster faster delivery such that you can learn more quickly Mm, and learn from live service data what's exactly. actually happening in the real exactly. world which is actually that's like a policymaker's dream really isn't it you yeah. get, getting getting almost real-time data about things and sometimes you take it for granted when you have it because mm. you see what's happening and once something becomes common sense you forget that it's a luxury to even know that whereas when you start to step into an area which hasn't got that data and that richness of information to draw on you fast see assumptions being made and then people sort of having lots of theoretical debates the best way to crack that is uh, get out there test something get the data back and then start to make decisions off the back of it. I'm not saying the decisions are always easy. It's not always clear cut, but at least you've all got the same evidence on which to make the decisions. Mm. I mean, I, I have to say from sort of observing it, it looks like a hard job on the one, like on the same day, you might have to deal with some gnarly technology legacy issue and have to go and tell, give a minister some bad news, right? So, um, well, let's come back to that. Maybe we'll get some top tips from you later. Okay, so you're two years into this transformation journey and then a global pandemic hits. Mm. And um, DfE realises that millions of kids, some of them in very disadvantaged areas of the country, are going to need laptops and internet so they can learn remotely. What happens next? Yeah, I mean, we all remember uh, that moment when uh, Boris Johnson stood up and said, uh, well, schools are closing and this uh, this is going to happen. And it was quite a fast uh, pe- uh, period of time where th- things move very quickly. Um, in the Department for Education, we had to really quickly work out what it meant for the delivery of the curriculum. How much did we expect schools to deliver? How would that be delivered remotely? And then if it was going to be delivered remotely, what do we do about those children who don't have uh, access? Um, One of the really important bits of context is that the department hadn't really been that engaged in what technology was in schools. It'd been very much a delegated responsibility. So it didn't have that much insight into what was already there, what provision was already available. And it didn't have teams. It didn't have teams or infrastructure that worked uh, in that space. So we really quickly had to diagnose the scale of the problem um, and that and then uh, take action. And all of this obviously was expected um, somewhat overnight. Now this is where operating in the way we just talked about with multidisciplinary teams really came to the fore and why I uh, stepped over to help with this and a number of the teacher recruitment and retention teams stepped over to help with this problem. And it's worth saying you're still doing your day job while this is going on. Yeah, the day day job doesn't stop either. So it's a a busy time. but it's what what was needed during the pandemic and everyone rolled up their sleeves. Uh, What we did really rapidly was uh, run uh, a series of 
sort of insight gathering activities, which included going out really quickly in a single evening and speaking to head teachers, teachers, uh, parents. What, what were they thinking about? What were the challenges they were worried about? And that allowed us to very quickly sort of segment the problem into uh, what what are we going to ask schools to teach? Uh, what are the safeguarding uh, we need to put in place for a varied range of situations, but including all the social care functions the Department for Education holds, and then the, the technology that's needed to enable some of our services that had been face-to-face to suddenly become remote. Uh, on the basis of that, we were then able, the policy designers were then able to start crafting the case, working out the numbers of uh, how much provision we'd have to provide and start making immediately that case to Treasury for the funding. Now, at the same time, uh, teams, the uh, digital delivery teams were forming because they were, were able to see that we're going to have to find a mechanism to uh, basically ration, ration the provision we were going to get and make sure it got to the people who needed it most across all of the, all of the country. Because presumably you've got serious supply chain problems. Oh, that's a whole, yeah, a whole nother story, which was uh, really fascinating to learn. So um, it, this is a global pandemic. So there was immediately a big demand for this type of technology across all sectors. Uh, equally, the transportation of that supply across the world was constrained because flights were grounded. Um, so we needed to uh, work really quickly to get a really significant scale bid on the global market to secure that supply for the country and then to work really carefully with um different countries and different airlines to make sure that supply could get to us really quickly. So there was all of that challenge happening at the same time. So we needed people who were um, able to help us through that. So what, again, was really crucial of that was bringing in people who understood understood what the uh, supply chain looked like and could advise us really quickly on what we needed to do. Uh, and how we set ourselves up was to make sure that we had teams that were focused on pro- different problems. So we had teams that were focused on Uh, the ability to access laptops, teams who are focused on how do we get internet into homes. And that sounds uh, easy when you say it really quickly, or maybe not easy, but when you think about the complexity of all the different ways you can offer the internet through mobile routers, giving out um, free mobile data, etc. It involved uh, an engagement with a huge network of uh, people who operate in that space and then equally we then had to look at okay well what about the schools who don't have remote education platforms for example google classroom or microsoft teams to be able to offer these lessons and how do we get those schools operating and and teachers trained on how to deliver it so what you had is a world where we had to operate all of those simultaneously we were not in the world where you do some deep thinking you pass it over you do some tests you do some learn so you needed people who are work who had the expertise to sort of put forward it all and then you had to have uh, people a very small group of people who could pull all of that insight together very clearly and articulately to explain to ministers what we could do next and and say see if that was appropriate and like I say make the case to those who have to give us the authority and that's not just treasury to spend it was also working with the cabinet office and the uh, department for culture and media sports who uh, were doing a lot of the coordination across government for okay well do laptops go into the health sector do laptops go into prisons do laptops go to those who are lonely and uh, old do laptops go into schools there aren't enough laptops there aren't enough laptops in the country so where how do we deal with this and they really helped then do, we had to make the case for what where we'd sit within that prioritization 
what I should say in all of this, if we take a step back from the context, because it's all, I could talk for it about hours, because there's so many wonderful and slightly bizarre stories that I thought I'd never be able to tell from it, from the experience. But what was really important was starting to do, start delivery as fast as we possibly could, and then learn and iterate. Because we could not get this right first time. There were some aspects that we were blind to before we started, but we made sure we had people, we had user researchers embedded, we had performance analysts embedded, and we created services that would allow us to see that insight of what was happening. So who was ordering, where it was going, how the laptops were being used, etc. And so we could keep making changes um, while at the same time trying to build the, build the infrastructure that would allow that flexibility for change. So I think from the summer term where we delivered our first 200,000 all the way through to the autumn term where we got up to a million, we the, the technology we had at our fingertips to enable us to change and move and improve changed vastly, um, which is really impressive when you think of it being six months, although we forever wanted to do a better job. So it was one of those things where you're always striving for more hours in the day. But the, the crucial thing is you were able to respond in this way because you had this service ownership model, you had this experience of multidisciplinary teams, you had policy people embedded with analysts and data people. You kind of you had all the pieces ready, didn't you? And I think and this is why it's so inspiring. I think this is what this is what citizens really want to see, don't they? They want to see their government, they want to see public services public servants being able to coordinate around these super hard problems and just just react to them. Can I ask as well? Um what were i'm sure lots of it was really hard because it sounds really hard what were the really hard bits i think the really the really hard bits were probably the ambiguity of the uh, situation so it was such a fast moving situation the decision making was therefore really hard so how long were schools were schools really going to be closed? It's so great in hindsight to look back and say, okay, well, we probably should have placed an order of X or Y because that length of time would warrant it, um, that sort of response. But at the time, there was this um, desire and the right desire to try and get schools back as quickly as possible. So therefore, there was some concern about how much do you invest in all of this right up front? And I think trying to navigate through that ambiguity and say to people, a decision now and a big decision now is better than waiting and seeing what happens because then you'll wait so long we won't be able to have any effect on the outcome. And I think trying to bring people with you when it's so ambiguous and the desire of when there's there's no certain data is let's wait to get it is was probably the hardest challenge and then with that supporting the teams through that environment so let's not forget that every single person working in these teams they weren't sitting in an office like they'd done the day before operating in the way they were used to all of a sudden they were at home their children were at home with them they were trying to operate and uh, deliver their own job effectively remotely um, and so there was a huge part of trying to help decision makers through that decision making while at the same time um, offering clarity and direction and some certainty for the teams who wanted to try and strive ahead in very difficult environment themselves. And I think it, that's the role where the service owner is really important because they can see across the piece, they can see how everyone's feeling and they can try and mediate and bring that together to the best possible um, conclusion. And, theref and therefore, one of the most important things in that environment is normally communication. Mm. You cannot communicate too much, even if it's just getting everyone on the call at the end of the day to say, there's no news today. 
but this is what, what we think we're doing and this is our current working assumptions. Keep keep pushing forward on this basis of these working assumptions and we'll keep you updated as things unfold. Mm. So, so Rachel, you're now NHS Digital's Director of Tech and Data for the Vaccination Programme. Um, so this week, the NHS has just launched the uh, Autumn COVID Booster Programme. So that is the... If I'm right, that is the largest and fastest vaccine drive in its history. Yes, yeah, since the start. Yeah, um, which is amazing in itself, isn't it? Um, And your team, have uh, they've been responsible for the digital infrastructure behind behind 126 million, is it, Jabs? Incredible. Um, So with that in mind... What do you think the role of digital data and technology is in health, particularly, I suppose, from a a sort of a a government perspective? Yeah, and this is a a really interesting question and one that's been talked about quite a lot because the opportunity for digital tech and data or services to transform uh, healthcare is huge. The opportunity is huge. You almost can't be too ambitious when you think about the healthcare sector. But at the same time, the scale is huge. And therefore, you have to really think about how does how does that structure work to deliver uh, the millions upon millions of healthcare interventions that are happening every single day across all parts of the country? And I think there are a, a few parts to this. So this comes back to something that you've been talking about throughout this conversation, which is data. I think it's really important that those, and I come back to this, who are helping set direction and make decisions are really, really well informed. So there needs to be um, at a national level, the ability to see and really understand what's happening uh, and what's happening in in the varied way across the country. So I think there's a lot that services can offer in terms of being able to share that data with people across all aspects of the decision making so people have a more coherent view of of what problems are and where there aren't problems. I think the second part is um, citizens, or at least especially I do, um, expect to have much more control over my own healthcare. I would like to be able to have my healthcare um, history in the palm of my hand, be able to make appointments, see my referrals, all of those sort of things. And equally, clinicians and other frontline staff need to be able to do their jobs really effectively and not have what exists in some parts of the healthcare system, which is lots of lots of different and varied clunky applications which they have to navigate through for each component part of their job. Um, and I think there's a real role, and we can learn a lot from the vaccinations program on this, to offer uh, services that operate at different levels. So services that operate nationally, where there needs to be national coherence, but also services that can be configured and used locally. And so you, you put the power of those the services in the hands of those making decisions at the front line, because ultimately they know their local population best. They're making all of those decisions all of the time. They don't need a national body to put something to sort of make the decisions for them. But what they do need is a national body to enable them to have uh, really, really, really great infrastructure to work with and for that infrastructure to then pass information back to the national bodies such that they can make views about how the money or how, how priorities move um, when they look at the system as a whole. Mm, fascinating. So um, I'm going to quote you again. <laughs> you said in another blog post, um, frighteningly ambitious ideas and patient execution can bring about innovation at scale. So in this 
journey you've been on over the last sort of four and a half, five years, what are the common themes that you've observed? You know, um, and I suppose what would your advice be to people setting out to do the same thing? The first thing I say is um, go for it. For those who are setting out on the journey, um, it won't be easy, but it's definitely rewarding. Probably the things I'd focus on most, so themes and tips all rolled into one, would be firstly focus on your operating environment. Don't don't uh, take for granted that everyone's going to want to achieve what you want to achieve. So understand how the money flows, how commercial decisions are made, how you get investment at both of people and uh, otherwise in your area, and don't let the uh, organisation kill a good idea. I think it's so much easier to kill a good idea than come up with one from scratch. So it's sometimes very hard when you're in the day to day uh, to see light at the end of the tunnel. But if you just take yourself away for a moment, remember why you're there, remember the outcomes you're trying to achieve, you can then challenge and and help people feel comfortable enough to take on what is normally a, a degree of risk when it's a new idea. So know your operating environment. Don't let it kill a good idea and be bold as you take that through. I think the next thing I'd say is um, have a bias to action. Uh, it's really important to uh, do to understand your space. So I'm not saying uh, do away with discoveries or anything super radical like that. You, you need you need to understand uh, your users and understand the data, but. Uh, one of the things that we've been testing and trying a little bit is doing uh, discoveries, alphas and betas in one. Uh, one of my peers called it uh, the stick of rock. And actually, if you start doing some doing, if you take a safe bet, you'll learn so much through that that it will inform some of your other parts. So you don't spend too long caught up in just that sort of desk-based uh uh, thinking because you're getting that real real insight coming in straight away such that you've got the compelling information or even the compelling story sometimes to move it forward so biased action is number two and then number three radical transparency and it you know I say radical transparency it's probably more radical in some organizations than others but talk about what you're doing even when you're not sure where you'll end up so talk publish blogs about what you're doing um, talk to your stakeholders openly about ideas, even if you're not sure if they're going to get traction and uh, be really clear when you're getting some data, which is showing it's not really working and have it in a way where people can say, well, actually, that might be because of X or Y, not not the reason you, you think. So you can constantly course correct. So I think if you've nailed your operating environment, you're taking action and you're being really transparent, you can go a long, long way uh, along the journey of making change. And as I said uh, earlier, this change is not just change for one or two people. This change can be for millions. So it's uh, you know incumbent upon us to go and take that action because people want to have that the problems fixed that they're experiencing day to day. It's very interesting you talking about that sort of that stick of rock. So it's, can you just sort of um, so if I'm right, what you're talking about is rather than having very clearly delineated discovery alpha beta maybe the spend control at each point and following that actually quite waterfall process you're talking about making a thing very quickly 
getting some data can you just can you just expand on it a bit more because it seems like this is a really important this is a really important principle yeah and it's and it's one that we've been evolving actually of how how can it work so if you think about the different parts that we're all well a lot of us are really familiar with in terms of uh, delivery so you have your discovery phase where you have your period of looking at what the problem is and you're gathering lots of insights normally involves lots of interviews with lots of people Um, and then you have your prototyping and your testing and then you do a bit of beta where it's live and you've got some scale to it now all of that sometimes ends up with you saying "Mm, actually it's not really shifting shift in the world but you're probably by that point depends on how fast you move but at least six to nine months down the line and that's still quite pacey in quite a lot of organizations what we've been um testing and seeing real reward is saying okay you know there are a few weeks of quick um design thinking but if you've got some some what we call bets some ideas of where the real problems are what's the leanest thing you can create to go and actually deliver a service and try and deliver it at a a decentish scale with some really willing participants so that you've then got um your ability for that information to come back in at the same time you're doing all of the things i just talked about so you're doing discovery other ideas are coming out you're starting to prototype them but at the same time those safe bets are starting to really deliver some concrete evidence of what's happening and what that means is you don't have the three-month discovery etc etc you you're having that all in a very condensed period of time so that you can then course correct like i say you could you could say actually that didn't work we're going to make another decision or you can say right we think this one's worth worthy of more investment let's start scaling really quickly because change is is hard change can take a long period of time but the expectations of how quickly we can fix problems are growing and growing like and almost the pandemic because everyone <laughs> we mobilized you know there was early hours work in early into the mornings but there's now such an expectation of how fast we can make change happen we need to find new ways of moving at speed but also carefully and methodically such that we can make really good decisions and it's that stick of rock doing it all at the same time allows us to then say right at a faster pace we think this is the best thing to start scaling let's go and uh, presumably what you're doing is you're picking uh, uh, a, you know a minimum viable pro- problem something quite small but with quite a high transaction volume is mm-hmm. that right so you yeah. can get some meaningful data and it's often and it, it's different in every context isn't it but what i found often works quite well is where you may have something that exists already that's not quite working and you can play around with a sub part of that and change it in some way so you don't have so you can use some of the existing infrastructure to not put a huge amount of investment to try something new that's the tends to be the golden space but it doesn't mean you can't do something in a different world where you try and um you know inject a new grant or something for example where you could literally uh, administer that grant through a form just to get it out there and see how it's working you know you can do that and then you can look at okay well how would it be better to uh, be better administered more effectively if it's something that works and really changes people's behavior and your stick of rock what runs through it you could take it two ways one you could say uh, intel i'm reluctant to say uh, what type of intel but inter- insight real intelligence yeah of what's happening data driven data driven yeah the other one you could say is people because what you also do with your stick of rock is you very rapidly build teams with insight of the, of the problem who've got real expertise and it's your people who ultimately um, 
make things happen. And if you've got really, really cracking teams with brilliant ideas who, who can move things at speed, you know, you can you can take on those frighteningly ambitious um, objectives. Mm, it seems uh, listening to you and actually, you know, having been able to watch you work as well, that on a day to day basis, you're wrangling technology problems, you're wrangling the political environment, you might be wrangling some horrible supply chain issue. But actually, as a service owner, mostly what you're doing is you're wrangling people. Yeah. You're 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 winning hearts and minds, aren't you? Because that is the thing that those are those are your tools, right? Yeah, it's a lot of um, coordinating and alignment. Um, it's sometimes you can feel something that isn't isn't quite working, and if you take a step back, you realise there hasn't been that clarity of what are we really all here trying to do, um, and that sounds easy when you say it out loud, but there can be really hidden objectives. Um, in in different uh, programs or initiatives. So I always remember speaking to a colleague at the Ministry of Defence who talked about uh, building a warship. And he said it was only quite far through, years through, uh, building this warship that he realised the objective wasn't to build the warship. The objective was to create jobs in the area that warship was being built. And actually, when you think about it like that, you, you operate in a very different way. Um, but until that's really clear and said out loud, you can have a lot of different people sort of pushing up against each other because they're all slightly trying to do different things. And I, I think that's um, the role of a service owner is to try and like get under the skin of what are you actually trying to do and achieve with, and that will then allow everyone to make decisions across the piece. Um, and it doesn't have to go through what we see sometimes, which is slightly slow and painful governance. Mm. So, Rachel, you've got another new project you're about to embark on. Do you want to talk briefly about that? Yes. So um, in about four weeks' time, I'm due to have a baby, which uh, is another hugely exciting challenge, Um, one that I'm sure will involve iterative learning. So (laughs) it'll be very similar. Um, So I'm taking a break for uh, probably about six months um, and then coming back and uh, continuing with the journey of, uh, what would going on in the vaccinations program, which is which is also um, exciting. So I'm at the point of feeling quite sad of taking a break from that, while also very excited about what that the next period will mean for me. Um, but yes, big changes. And the civil service is pretty great at supporting families through this. It isn't is. It? It's really. I feel very fortunate that uh, there. I'm, I'm not fearful. The question is more: How do I continue to deliver really effectively? and have a family at the same time and that those questions are being asked now and the support's been put in place now. So I've already had three conversations about my keep in touch arrangements during that period. So I don't lose, um, and it's choice, but I don't want to lose contact with the change that we've started um, in the vaccination space. So when I come back next year, I'm really excited to see um, where we've got to and keep picking up the ambition of supporting more and more different vaccinations. Mm. And um, where can people find out more about what you're thinking, what your experiences have been? I think the probably the best place to look, there's quite a few blogs uh, published on the DF, the Department for Education's digital blog website um, and elsewhere. So we can share links to that. And they talk about the challenges we've spoken about, bringing policy and delivery together and then what it can yield if you do do that because that's the one thing I'd love people to take away and try in their own areas because I just see people get really lit up (laughs) by the fact that they can make change happen and I see it in these types of teams. 
Mm. Well, it's super inspiring. We're really lucky to have you in government. Um, uh, and best of luck Thank with you. your journey. Thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you.